0: Welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest is Sirwan Kajo. Sirwan is a Washington based journalist and researcher focusing on Kurdish politics, Islamic militancy, extremism, and conflict in the Middle East and beyond. His debut novel, Nothing But Soot, about a 20 something Kurdish man whose quest for a permanent home never ends, was published in 2015. Our conversation today looks at the situation of the Kurds in Syria and Iraq. Sinwan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Bill. First of all, let's talk about the Kurdish forces, the Syrian Democratic Forces, SDF, in Syria. They were instrumental in the victory against ISIS. To what extent are they now menaced by a resurging ISIS, and what are some of the problems they're facing in uh, places like the detention center at al Hal? Sure, so um, as
1: you know, the Islamic State terror group was declared um, defeated in March 2019. But since then, the ISIS has morphed into something more like an insurgent group and it has decentralized, it has diversified its resources in terms of attacking opposing forces. And you see the Islamic State attacking in the Badia region of Eastern Syria um, the Syrian regime and its allies on one hand, and the Syrian Democratic Forces and its local allies on the other hand. Um, ISIS has been very active in areas where there is a little SDF control, and we're talking about parts of the Zor province, and this has been an issue since day one. Um, the area has uh, a lot of um, natural resources. All groups involved in the Syrian conflict I um, this area, the Russians, the Iranians, the Syrian regime, obviously, ISIS when it ruled the area and from 2014 to 2019. You know, Bill, almost on a daily basis, there are raised their attacks claimed by ISIS in, in eastern Syria, but there are also campaigns um, carried out by the, uh, the SDF and the uh, U.S.-led coalition to target those active cells in part of Hasakah and their zor provinces in eastern Syria. Added to that, as you mentioned, the crisis, the ongoing crisis in the Al-Hol camp, where up to 60,000 people, mostly um, children and women, are being held. The majority of these people are refugees, people who were captured, uh, people who were had to put into this detention center after the liberation of uh, the last pocket of ISIS uh, controlled in Eastern Syria. Um, But we have a lot of radicalized people, mostly foreign women who still believe in the extremist ideology of ISIS. And this has led to more death in um, al Hol camp. So far in 2021, uh, more than 77 uh, people, mostly Iraqi refugees, have been killed as a result of the ongoing violence in the camp and um, the camp is has really literally turned into a hotbed for um, uh, ISIS recruiters and uh, not only inside the camp but also outside a whole camp and um, you have something called al-hawala uh, which is a, a local um, system for transferring money that is very active so these people receive money from outside which make them more you know and control in terms of recruiting uh people inside the camp unless there is an immediate uh, action taken to resolve this issue the situation in my opinion at El Hole camp will get out of control the SDF and the coalition forces will have to deal with it more um uh, decisively
0: yeah as you say there is the the oil that's one aspect of the story and and, and the the battle for control of that resource and then the SDF faced with a really serious issue at Al-Hal, and uh, it's very interesting. You mentioned the the money coming in because people are desperate, and if someone can offer money to do a job, regardless of how awful or dangerous that job may be, some people will take the money.
1: That's correct. Yeah, unfortunately, and 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 it, it, there, to me at least, um, there isn't an international will to um, to tackle this issue, and the world uh, suddenly seems to have forgotten about the whole ISIS threat. You know, at some point, everybody was talking about it because ISIS, you know, was in control of large swath of territory in Iraq and Syria. So the threat was more visible. Right now, we see a low-key insurgency taking place in Iraq and Syria. And unfortunately, a lot of countries um, are not paying enough attention to this, to the, um, the uh, ISIS foreign uh, fighters, that are held in Syria, the refugee crisis in al hol and other smaller uh, detention centers in northeast Syria. And the SDF doesn't have enough resources to keep these people indefinitely, especially at this time uh, of the uh, COVID, uh, of the coronavirus pandemic, just today one uh, al hol camp resident died as a result of COVID, um, because simply the SDF doesn't have the capacity to uh, to cont- uh, contain this pandemic uh, outside the camps, let alone inside these camps.
0: Yeah, and so on, there's lots of conversation going on about the American presence in Syria. There's really only very few troops remaining after Trump pulled out a significant number. But if the Americans pull out, what are the risks... Um, and, you know, for the SDF, I mean, what are the dangers of, of a full American uh, pullout?
1: You know, Bill, we uh, all remember just less than two years ago when the U.S., um, when there was a partial U.S. Uh, troop withdrawal from uh, northeast Syria and the following, you know, the subsequent Turkish invasion of parts of northeast Syria and how uh, that was really bad for the SDF in terms of continuing its fight against ISIS. Of course, the U.S. since the beginning of this anti-ISIS campaign in 2014 has kept a very minimal uh, military presence in the region, but that presence has been very instrumental in terms of keeping the peace, not only um, to continue the fight against ISIS, but also to keep uh, the Kurds and other ethnic groups in the region uh, live um, in peace. With a very small contingent, the U.S. has been able to um, provide uh, stability. The post-ISIS stability that everyone talks about is very um, you know, contingent to the U.S. presence in, in, in the region. So I, I can't imagine how uh, disastrous the uh, consequences would be for the SDF, for the Kurds, and for other um, local allies of the SDF if there is a us uh, a sudden us uh, troop withdrawal from uh, from this region and you know we've we don 't only have uh, one uh, group that wants to take over the region. We have the turks on one on one side we have the Russians and the Syrian regime on the other hand. We also have Iranian an interest in of the um, by the iranian backed militias to take over parts of the region. Just last week bill um, the there was um, an episode a violent episode. Um, basically, five days of clashes between uh, local uh, SDF-backed security forces in the city of Pamishli and um, Iranian and Russian-backed Syrian government uh, troops and a local militia known as the National Defense Forces. And the result was um, five days of uh, violence that terrified the residents of the city. Uh, and, but then resulted in the SDF taking control of, the, uh, of a neighborhood that was held by, uh, by the Syrian regime. My point is for the U.S. to uh, keep stability and keep working on post-ISIS stabilization in this region, it has to maintain a certain um, military presence in order to achieve that goal. Without that, all these forces will literally take over the region once the U.S. withdraws.
0: And do you think Joe Biden gets that? Do you think his advisors get just how strategic that small American force is?
1: I think so. Um, they've made it clear, with, at least from their meetings with the local Kurdish officials in northeast Syria, that the U.S. will continue to remain engaged in, in, in this region, will help resolve the bigger Syrian crisis, because they believe that a resolution to the Syrian crisis will ultimately allow the Kurds and others in northeast Syria to um, to live in peace, basically. And so I do believe that uh, the Biden administration has a plan for the region um, by supporting local forces, by democratizing the local um, uh, administration that runs uh, parts of uh, northeast Syria.
0: Now, I want to ask you about the Assad regime and accommodation with the Assad regime. Uh, There has been already something of that. Do you see it becoming a more formal process? Uh, And if so, what would the Kurds want in return? Would they accept Assad remaining in power indefinitely? You
1: know, Bill, one thing that a lot of people don't get um, about the SDF and the Kurds in general is the SDF objective is really to protect this region that they are in control in northeast Syria. Uh, unlike other anti-Assad forces that really want to go for Damascus, basically replace Assad. And that's why they've been, you know, fighting him. That's the only difference. And that's, that's what drives the SDF and its, you know, talks with the, with the Syrian regime. Really, what they want is For this region to have a special status, meaning uh, once there is a new military structure, the SDF will be part of the new defense uh, system keeping in mind that this is a group that has been fighting ISIS and other um, extremist groups for more than five years. It has the capacity to uh, not only liberate areas, but also control them and provide protection, uh, long-term protection. And so really, uh, when it comes to talks with the Syrian regime, this is one main issue. The Assad obviously wants to reclaim his authority over every inch, as they call it, of Syrian territory. But that's something that, in my opinion, the SDF would not give up in any future negotiations. And that's one thing that has basically kept the informal negotiations from going uh, any further, despite pressure from Moscow on both sides to put their difference, differences aside and focus on more important issues. But for the SDF, that's that's a number one priority to keep the Kurdish region you know, and under its control and then talk about other other issues, whether it's political uh, or military matters. Um, you know, and, and a lot of people accuse the SDF of, uh, you know, collaborating with Assad since it's um, since the beginning of the Syrian uh, civil war. But I would disagree with that because just last week, and we talked earlier about the clashes in Qamishli, in that really um, the SDF doesn't have any interest in collaborating with the Assad regime. It is in a in a position to talk to Assad as a competitor, not as a subordinate. And that's something that a lot of people uh, miss when it comes to analyzing the Assad-SDF relationship.
0: Mm, Yeah, and I suppose the question is, can the SDF, can the Kurds trust Assad? No, I don't think so. Look, um, the Kurds, as an, as an ethnic group, has
1: suffered the most under the Syrian uh, regime. You know, of course, were denied basic rights. You know, the right to use, you know, name their children with Kurdish names. Then the 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 right to learn the Kurdish language, the right to uh, own property along the border with Turkey, you know, basic rights that other people would take it, even within Syria, would take it for granted. And so to say that um, the Kurds uh, are, can easily trust the Assad is, um, is simply not uh, not the case. No, they have experienced firsthand what this regime is capable of in terms of denying rights, in terms of Allowing uh, or not allowing other people to uh, carry on with their with their daily lives.
0: Yeah, there's a, a watching brief now between the SDF and and the Assad regime. But but I want to ask you about Turkey. What sort of pressures the Turks are bringing to bear on uh, the Kurds and the SDF in Syria?
1: So, um, first, I'd like to talk about how the Syrian uh, democratic forces. And the Kurds, really, for Turkey, is a national security matter. And as the SDF in 2016 was expanding beyond its um, traditional Kurdish territory, basically going into places like Manbij in Aleppo province, in Raqqa, and then preparing for the major battle to liberate um, their resort from ISIS, going into more, you know, into Arab territory, basically, and, and holding on to that territory. That was alarming for Turkey. And um, that's why um, the Turks in 2016 uh, launched their, their first military operation into uh, Syrian territory. Two years after that, they took over the Kurdish region of Afrin in, in 2018, and then in 2019, in October 2019, following the partial U.S. withdrawal, Turkey took control of more territory in northeast Syria, namely the towns of Ras and Tel Abiyat. So Turks really don't want the Kurds to have a, a an autonomous region, an entity, a new entity uh, along its southern border, and um, because they believe that the SDF is linked with the PKK, with the Kurdistan Workers' Party, which is labeled as a terrorist organization by, by, the, uh, by Ankara, by uh, Washington and the European Union. And so that's what drives Ankara's policy in Syria, at least in northern Syria, to basically prevent uh, uh, the Kurds from establishing a, a contiguous uh, entity along its southern border. And so Turkey will continue to expand its territory in parts of this region, and that's why right now, as we're speaking, there are clashes in the uh, near the town of Ain Issa um, in, in northern Syria between the SDF and Turkish-backed Syrian militias because they think it is very important, and it is the region is is of strategic importance in terms of connecting the two areas in the, uh, in the northeast and the, and, and, and the northern part, towns like Kobani and, and Membej and other places that are under the SDF control. What Turkey really wants is to basically cut off that access uh, line between the northeast and uh, the remaining uh, towns under the SDF control in the northwest.
0: So there might again be some give and, give and take there, I suppose, but I wanted to ask you also about, because Syria, Syrian Kurdish forces themselves are are, are somewhat uh, uh, split, uh, but there are there, there are these factions or conversations going on which the US has encouraged and, and which are being overseen by the SDF. Uh, tell me more about that situation.
1: So, yes, sure. It started a little over a year ago. Um, the general commander of Syrian Democratic Forces, Muslim Abdi, uh, announced um, his sponsorship for um, these intra-Kurdish talks, mainly between the ruling, the de facto ruler of the Kurdish region, that's the PYD, the Democratic Union Party, that is essentially affiliated with the SDF. And then you have the um, Kurdish National Council, KNC, that is uh, supported by the ruling party in in Iraqi Kurdistan, the Kurdistan Democratic Party and is friendly with uh, with Turkey. And so um, these two groups have been at odds even before the uh, beginning of the Syrian civil war. They have a lot of uh, differences, uh, you know, ideological differences, uh, political differences. And right now the way they look at um, resolving the Syrian crisis and you know, running the Northeast. And so what the SDF is trying to do is present itself as a neutral force and try to, you know, bring these two uh, groups together. Now, talks have been very difficult for obvious reasons, as the fact that I always say Kurdish politics in Syria are never local um, because you have different outside groups uh, trying to influence, you know, the, how politics work in, in Northeast Syria through their uh, local partners. And um, that's why the, um, the talks haven't yielded any tangible results. And uh, the main reason that the talks are still ongoing, in my opinion, is the US involvement. The U.S. has a vested interest in uh, keeping uh, this autonomous administration in Northeast Syria operational, but also, you know, but also has some basic functionality in terms of uh, bringing uh, other non-SDF affiliated forces, bringing other non-Kurdish groups into it, and make this administration more inclusive and more durable um, to be an an important player in the post-conflict phase. And a lot of people believe that only, with only a strong US participation in these talks, uh, we will see something uh, more tangible Uh, Right now, the deputy uh, U.S. envoy for the global coalition, uh, David uh, Brownstein, is present in northeast Syria. He's the top U.S. diplomat in the region anyway. And he uh, continues on almost a daily basis his meetings with the two sides to try to bring them together and at least announce something that they can build on for a, a real partnership in running the show in northeast Syria.
0: Okay, Sirwan. uh, Let's turn now to Iraq. Uh, You have a much more aggressive Turkish presence there, with persistent attacks, the Claw Eagle offensives on on the PKK, uh, which, as you say, Turkey and other nations regard as a uh, Kurdish terrorist organization. What impact are those uh, operations, those Turkish military operations, having?
1: Um, Little impact in terms of um, you know removing the PKK from these uh, border areas. Kurdish officials in, in in Iraq are really um, uh, in a in a bad position. They're they're between a, 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 you know a rock and a hard place. On the one hand, they are great economic partners with the uh, with the Turkish government, and on the other hand, they can't directly oppose the presence of uh, the Kurdistan Workers' Party PKK in 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 the region because because they can't you know. They can't look like they're uh, opposing a Kurdish nationalist movement, which w- could reflect negatively on, on their popularity in the Kurdish region and in and other and other Kurdish populated areas in the Middle East. So um, these uh, Turkish uh, military campaigns, unfortunately, only target civilians in these border areas. Uh, more than 40 villages have been targeted only since the beginning of the new uh, Turkish campaign campaign. And um, the PKK has been there for for years and saying so. They have built, they have entrenched in, in 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 the region, and it's really hard for the Turkish government to target them by airstrikes. Um, now Turkey has a ground present. They have they have ground forces in the region, but they don't have the capability of combating PKK in these mountainous uh, areas, and so really um it's the local population, it's those villagers in in border areas that have been paying uh, the price for this conflict that Mm, the 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 KRG the Kurdistan Regional Government really believes is an exported problem. Um just a couple of days ago, the Prime Minister of the region, Masrur Barzani, um, called on both sides, meaning the PKK and Turkey, to basically take their fight to on their turf and and stop fighting on on Iraqi Kurdish territory. Um, but you know this is something that won't be um resolved overnight. This is something. Uh, that, of course, takes political will on both sides. I suspect that these types of um, military um, actions in, in northern Iraq on the Kurdish uh, region will continue, but with no direct results in terms of targeting the
0: PKK. But as you point out, the damage to the civilian population. Uh, in February, there was a missile attack on Erbil. Uh, Caroline Rose and Rasha al at New Lines Institute point out that an Iraqi Shia militia was behind it at the behest of Iran. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Iran engaging as well. The Kurds once again finding themselves uh, victims of outside players.
1: Yeah, this is really a major threat for for the Kurdistan region. Um, That February attack was very obvious and the Kurds said that, you know, it was at least the weapons used in in that attack was Iranian-made. Same thing just um, 10 days ago um, in mid-April, there was another attack claimed by uh, Shia militia, Kurdish officials in, in the region accused certain elements within the Popular Mobilization Forces, Hash Shabi, of um, being behind that attack. So this is a new trend, um, Iranian-backed militias attacking U.S. interests in the Kurdish region, uh, namely the us base near the Erbil International Airport and other interests uh, that uh, for you know that are important for the region and for the US and the global coalition this is not a, an an internal matter in my opinion this is something that the uh, the US and the coalition needs Need to uh, put their efforts together and try to protect the region and also their interest um, in, in in the KRG and yeah the um, you know the United States France Germany and and the UK and other countries came up with a very strong worded statement uh, against that recent attack. But Kurdish officials say they're looking for something more than wars. They need more concrete action in terms of protecting the region.
0: Mm. And meanwhile, between uh, relations, rather I should say, between Baghdad and, and the Kurdish region, I mean they're not partic- they've never been particularly good, but, but uh, how strained are they? And I'm thinking too, uh, you know, ahead of this election that uh, Prime Minister al-Qadaami has said will happen in October. What's the uh, situation there?
1: So recently, the two sides, Erbil and Baghdad, reached uh, an agreement, uh, which was very important uh, over the budget, the national budget, but also the KRG uh, budget from the f- federal revenues. Now, that hasn't happened yet. The parliament, the Iraqi parliament approved the budget into law, but uh, the Iraqi government hasn't really sent the Kurdish region's share to it yet. And, and that's why we see a lot of government workers in the KRG haven't been paid for months. And the crisis continues uh, amid uh, the coronavirus pandemic, and um, but that's not the only issue. We have so many other issues that the uh, KRG and Iraqi government have to um, deal with. Uh, at some point, the number one priority, I think, in my opinion, is uh, the uh, addressing the this so-called disputed areas, areas that were hotbeds for the Islamic State terrorist group at some point, and after its removal, the uh, these Iranian-backed militias have taken overs and the region continues to be um, a place for for ISIS activity and also for other, um, you know, militias. So, really, implementing, for example, the Article One for in the Iraqi Constitution, and uh, you know, normalizing uh, the situation in Kirkuk and other prov- and other areas and along these disputed areas. That's something that needs to uh, be addressed at some point. That. Uh, if the Iraqi, if the current Iraqi uh, prime minister is really genuine about solving long-standing uh, issues with the with the KRG, these are the issues that the two sides need to work out before talking about um, a new trust, before even talking about you know holding elections on, on you know on, uh, without any delays in October.
0: And within the Kurdish Iraq, um, I was last there more than a decade ago. But the people I talked to then were fed up with corruption, with the two ruling families, the Barzanis and the Talibanis, running just about everything. They were facing electricity blackouts, a lack of clean drinking water, poor health, education, housing facilities, and everywhere they turned, corruption within the government. Has anything changed?
1: Um only it got only uh, worse and um, bill to be honest with you these I was there um right before the pandemic and uh, the same uh, grievances the same complaints that people um had when you were there um a decade ago are there still present you know most basic needs that people um, for people haven't been addressed, um, electricity, um, even salaries. And you know, the vast majority of the population in the region relies on government salaries. And with the issues between the Iraqi government and the KRG still unsolved, these people have been um, paid for, uh, for months. Uh, exacerbating an already uh, bad situation. So no, it's not doing well. Corruption is still a major issue, even though the prime minister, the new prime minister, Mr. Berzani, has come up with a, with a, an aggressive campaign to fight corruption. But the problem in the Kurdish region is that it is so, the, the corruption has become part of the system and you can't address it unless you, addre- you, you change the system from within, And, 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 you know, we're talking about, we're not only talking about economic and financial corruption, we're talking about corruption within, um, you know, the military force, the Peshmerga force, the, you know, uh, the Kurdistan regional government hasn't been able to unify its fighting force. For example, the fighting force that has been praised by the U.S. and other international uh, partners in terms of its effectiveness in the fight against ISIS, that very fighting force has been divided. And so that leads to more corruption more competition between different political parties, the PUK and the KDP and other emerging parties. So right now you have a generation from in the Kurdistan region that is detached from uh, the political elite and that has so many uh, grievances, economic and social grievances, that doesn't fully participate in the political process because it's only confined to certain groups, to certain elites within the two ruling parties. And the major population still suffers from lack of basic needs that people would have to in order to go on with, with their daily lives.
0: Mm. Now, one final question, Seroen. Uh, the Kurds remain a people without a nation. What will it take to change that? And will that ever, do you think, happen?
1: Well, you know, Bill, you go to any Kurdish city or village in any part of the Middle East, whether it's in Iraq, Syria, Turkey, or Iran, and you ask them what their dream is, and they would say an independent Kurdistan. So it's in the back of every Kurd uh, across the region and around the world. Realistically, though, uh, Kurds have seen how that could be difficult, if not impossible, at least at this stage. Uh, And uh, the 2017... Uh, referendum for independence in the Iraqi Kurdistan region uh, is an indicative of that hard reality, how the international community, including the United States, opposed the uh, the independence referendum and how consequential that was in terms of preserving the status quo in the Kurdish region. So, uh, yes, um, uh, Kurds, you know, ordinary, ordinary Kurds would still dream of that day when kurdistan is the greater kurdistan is unified and liberated from these other countries and governments but realistically uh, well uh, on the ground kurdish political parties have been more realistic in terms of uh, their demands so for example there's almost uh, no one kurdish political movement in any part of the kurdish regions in the middle east that calls for an independent Kurdish state.
0: Yes, but the dream, as you say, um, lives and and understandably, and I'm sure it's a dream that you yourself share.
1: Yes, that's that's something that a lot of Kurds growing up are used to. You know, like in the Kurdish folk music, and Kurdish and Kurdish songs, and no rural celebrations. That's something that every single Kurd would celebrate, um, and it is it's part of the pop culture, uh, if you say in terms of how the Kurds see themselves and see the the world around themselves.
0: Sirwan, thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This was fun.
0: You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was the author and journalist Sirouan Kajo. His debut novel is titled Nothing But Soot, and you can order it online. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to ArabDigest.org. If you're a student, we have a new rate of £10 a month or £100 per year. For academics and retirees, we're now offering a rate that amounts to a 70% discount. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check us out on ArabDigest.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources.